2013, right? This is when we launched, September of 2013. And um, for those of you that may not be aware, maybe you haven't been around that long, um, we do, an, an our ministry years run from September to September, and we do uh, an annual theme every year. And so that first year in 2013, our theme was Be Rooted, and we started in Ephesians, but we just wanted to cover what are the basics. If we're going to be a church together, maybe we could just have, just stand up briefly and sit back down. If you started coming to church in that first year, September of 2013, could you stand up real quick and then sit back down? Just look around long enough to see who it was. We've got a lot there. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Uh, then the second year, we... The theme was vertical church, and that was important to us. We wanted to be a church that uh, the community wasn't the priority. God was the priority. Worshiping him was the priority. And knowing that if we had that priority set straight, we'd be able to serve the community far better than if we made the community the priority. Uh, how many came in starting, say, in September of 2014, that next year? If you're, That was your first year. Stand up briefly real quick. See if we have any. We got a couple. We got a couple. All right. And then the third year was, you know, three years in. And I'll be honest with you, we had some expectations. I had some expectations that we'd be, man, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bust out the town. We're going to have the biggest church in town. We'll have our own building. And in fact, it was, we had just lost our work. We couldn't even afford our worship pastor anymore, our worship leader anymore. He had to move away. And that third year, we settled on the theme of waiting on God. Based on Lamentations chapter 3, verses 25 to 26, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. How many remember, remember that theme with the hourglass? Stand up if you came that third year. Anyone here from the third year? That was a, that was a low year. All right. Well, <laughs> year four and five, we did I Am a Disciple Maker. We made our way through the book of Luke, I believe. And we just learned what does it mean to be a disciple? Uh, mostly that first year. And then what does it mean to be a disciple maker? We decided to stay on that a whole nother year because it was so important. And we learned that a true disciple maker loves unconditionally, lives authentically, leads uh, transparently. Anyone, anyone here from year four and five? Stand up if you're from those years. One. There he is. All right. It was worth it. Those two years were worth it just for you. Uh, and, then, and then we followed that in year six with a series in Acts. Move, And it was about learning what we'd learned through discipleship and pushing that out and trying to live that in our lives. Anyone here from year six? Do you remember that? Not many. Then last year was We Believe. And we covered the doctrines of the church. And we preached every doctrine. We wanted to make sure it was clear what we believed. Anyone started coming as of September of last year? Stand up if that's you. That's, uh, we, got a, we got a handful there. We got some there, there. All right, they're not standing, but they raised their hands. So that's close enough. Uh, so we did We Believe. And, um, and then when we got to the end of that ministry year, that's when COVID had happened. And the elders and I thought it would be wise to take a break and actually just go through the book of Daniel. We thought it would be very relevant for where we're at and looking forward to the end of all things. So we took that time in the book of Daniel. And that leads us to this morning, today, where we officially start our eighth annual theme. From the book of John, chapter 5, I encourage you to turn there to John, chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Let me go ahead and read that. Let's read that together. In John, chapter 5, verse 31, it says, Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, 
And I know what the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have not heard. His form you have not seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you. I'm sorry, do not think that I will accuse you. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Now what I want to really zero in on is verse 39 and 40. It says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. How many of us would say amen to that? I I search the scriptures because I believe in them I have eternal life. He says, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what this is telling us is there is no salvation. There is no hope. There is no life to be found in God's word unless Jesus is found therein. This is an important word to us because we treasure the word of God. Some, you know, the Catholic faith, faith, for instance, would say that we even worship the word of God because we revere it so highly. But what is critical here is if we don't come to Jesus through the word of God, we're coming to a dead end. We're coming so close, but we're still going to miss the mark. And so what I want to spend this next year doing, and we'll, you know, take breaks for mini series and book studies and um, you know, a Christmas series. But by and large, I want to just come and, and have this theme of seeing Jesus in all of Scripture. Look what he says. He says down in verse 46, he says, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He says, when we go back there, you can see me in those passages. And that's what I want to do. I want to just kind of search every nook and cranny in Scripture this year. And I want to find Jesus everywhere we look. You know, our children's ministry does this. Our children's ministry curriculum has a three-year rotation. And so if kids go through that, they go through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. No book missed, no theme missed. Every three years, they go through the whole Bible. And again, and you could talk to Dan Sandberg about this again and again and again. Every lesson, they find Jesus. Where is Jesus in this passage? Where is Jesus in this lesson? And this is what I want to do as a church collectively, because we should see Jesus. 
in every sorrow and every joy in our life. We should see Jesus in every comfort and every tear. Every, every moment that our soul captures, we should take that and reflect upon Jesus. In our church services here, we see Jesus in, in every uh, offering that we take, every prayer that we make, uh, when we sing, when we take communion. Everything is a picture of, or it's addressing, or it's looking to, or it's worshiping, or it's a response to Jesus. And ideally, we grow to the point in our own lives where we see Jesus in every choice that we make, every value that we establish, every goal that we set, every sin that we confess, we see Jesus in it. And if all that is true, then certainly when we open this book, we should see Jesus in, in every book of the Bible, in every story, in every theme, every page, every chapter, every verse. So let's look back at, there's a lot in these few verses here. Let's go back and look through this. And uh, first, perhaps, you know, Jesus makes this clear in this passage. That he is everywhere in Scripture, and if we miss it, we miss everything. So let's go back and look at this more closely, but let's take some time to lay down some context. In John chapter 1, we're introduced to who Jesus is, and we're also introduced to who John the Baptist is. Notice in in chapter 1 and verse uh, uh, 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. That was important to put in there. I think we sometimes underestimate the impact of John the Baptist's ministry. It was so bright, so blazing, so convicting. It was a revival down by the river that John had to make it clear, the writer John had to make it clear, John the Baptist was not the Messiah. There was another one. And we're introduced to both those characters in chapter 1. And also in chapter 1, the disciples are called. And then in chapter 2, we see the first miracle, God turning Uh, the water into wine. He also cleanses the temple in chapter 2. Chapter 3, we uh, see the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus and learn a little more about John and the baptisms that he's doing. And then in chapter 4, we have the Samaritan woman, the first healing recorded in John. And then in chapter 5, we have another healing. And then we have this, where Jesus has the need to validate his ministry. But notice, look in in chapter 5, verse 16. All of this is happening. And then in verse 16, he says, it says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so that's why Jesus launches into, in verses 19 and following, this defense of his own calling, this defense of his ministry. And in this, we see why the Jews had a problem accepting Jesus' authority. Despite having so many witnesses. So let's look at those witnesses, and let's start... In, uh, in verse 31, the first one was uh, John the Baptist. And, and John's witness was unlasting. That's a word you won't find in the dictionary, but it is in literature. Trust me, I've seen it there before. But John's witness was unlasting. Look at verse 32. 
Jesus said, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he was and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So it says that they sent to John. Where where did that take place? If you turn back just a few pages to chapter one, you see where they sent to John in chapter one and verse 19. It says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to tie. So they accepted John's testimony for a while, but only for a while. They could not deny the movement that was happening down by the river where baptisms were taking place. The revival was happening, but it only lasted a while. Why did it only last a while? Well, I think once the Pharisees realized that he was not going to usher people to them, they quit believing. They quit finding interest in him. I think once the people got past the enthusiasm, the thrill, the swell, when the energy of the thousands was reduced to just an interaction, one-on-one, perhaps in an alleyway, when the words of John the Baptist rung in their ears. If you have two tunics, give one to someone that doesn't have one. And in that lonely, isolated alley, maybe their enthusiasm for John the Baptist waned. Perhaps solitary in their room, repentance was more difficult than when you have the throngs of people walking down to the river to get baptized. Eventually, John was beheaded. And the prophetic voice was silenced. And so, as Jesus describes it, he says, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We have to be careful here. There's a lesson for us about rejoicing in the light of mortal man. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. I just came back from a pastor's conference, and once again, close friend of mine, a pastor, had been a pastor for seven years, left his wife, left the ministry. And it gets to the point where it seems like every year, who's next? What's going to happen? Which pastor is going to fall away? We've seen it happen in this town. This is what happens when you put your hope and you rejoice in the light of a man instead of the light of Christ. You risk the possibility the good chance that you're going to be let down. We have to rejoice in the light. Every man has to be either a lens for that light or an arrow to that light. And if they're not that, then we can't accept them. We have to reject them. This is why a plurality of elders in our church is so critical, so important. And this, this friend of mine who walked away 
Their church is in a good place. They're in a healthy place because they had a plurality of elders to pick up when one of them fell off. And it also goes to show all that discipleship that this pastor had led the people in, it was real. Because this people rejoiced in the light and not in him, when he burnt out, their faith did not. That's important for you. This, this faith has to be yours. The joy has to be yours in Christ, not yours through anyone else. John's witness lasted but for a while. There's only one light we ought to rejoice in, and that is Jesus Christ. In verse 36, we see a second reason that the Jews rejected Jesus' authority. Look with me in verse 36. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given me to, uh, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So John, Jesus is saying, I've, I've got a better testimony than John even because John didn't do miracles. He did baptisms. I'm doing miracles. And yet, Jesus' works were unconvincing to many people. Jesus' miraculous works were unconvincing to many people. Have you ever heard of the expression, a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? That's, that's exactly what was happening with many people that saw the works of Christ. Did you know, by way of example, did you know that there is a whole movement of people out there called the Flat Earthers? Anyone aware of that? Raise your hand if you've heard. These people truly, I think they truly believe it, unless it's all a big gag, that the earth is flat. There is a documentary on Netflix, and in it you had these Flat Earthers that were setting up a a really ingenious uh, experiment to prove that the earth was flat. If we could put that, that diagram up there. So what they did is they had two panels that were a short distance apart, and they had uh, uh, the hole equal, equal, dis- equal height from the ground, and then they had a camera shooting through that, and further away, it was, more than, it was way more than 23 feet, I don't know how, I didn't make this diagram, but really far away there was a person with a light, and they're going to hold that light up, and so if the earth is flat, that light should shine right through both those holes in the middle of the night, I think they actually had a laser, but if it wasn't, if the earth had curvature at all, over a certain distance, it would miss, right? You guys follow? And so on this documentary, these flat earthers did this experiment, and they looked through the hole, and there's no light. Well, where's the light? Hold it up higher, hold it up higher. Finally, the guy held the light, and it was 23 feet high or something like that. And they finally saw the light. The, their experiment proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earth was, in fact, round. Guess what their reaction was? I don't know why this experiment didn't work. It, I don't know. We'll have to figure that out. I, I don't know what's going on here. And then they later even did a more uh, expensive and really intricate experiment with like a, a, a gyroscope that cost $20,000. And, and, you know, a gyroscope wants to stay where it is in space. And, you know, you knock it off, it wants to go forward again. Well, they have this gyroscope that is, 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 is almost eternal. It's, it's so powerful that even though the earth moves underneath it, it wants to stay where it is in space. And so after a certain number of hours, it's going to have a certain degree of tilt because the earth is moving underneath it. So they were convinced if we buy this and we put it up, it won't move at all. We'll prove the earth is flat. And guess what? They opened the box and sure enough, 
And guess what their response was? They said, yeah, we're not telling many people about that. We have a theory. We think maybe the sky is spinning or something like that. But they, no matter what evidence they saw before them, they refused to believe what the evidence was pointing to. And we have the same thing happening here in Christ's ministry throughout the book of John. We see it in chapter 5 and verse 16 where it says, all these, the healings that he were doing were the very reason why they were persecuting him. See it in verse 16? And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. It should have had the opposite effect. In chapter 6, in verse 26, you see it as well, where uh, he says, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is just after he had fed the 5,000. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they saw the signs only as a means to their own personal end. Of course, in chapter 9 and verse 13 through 34, you see a great example of this where they refuse to believe. In John chapter 9, uh, he heals the blind man. Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. And now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and, and I can see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. They were drawing a conclusion that was opposed to the evidence. They said, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, he said he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received sight until they called his parents of the man who had received sight and asked them, is this your son whom you say was born blind? They just could not deal with the reality of what Jesus was doing. And his parents answered, We know this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. They're saying, we're not going to weigh in on this. We don't want to get kicked out of the temple. And uh, verse 24, For the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, You give glory to God, because we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And so there you see a great example of two conflicting testimonies. One man experienced the miracle, and because of it he believed. And another group saw the miracles, and because of it they refused to believe. Jesus' works were not convincing enough for the Pharisees. Another quote from Upton Sinclair, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. The Pharisees had a lot to lose if Jesus was legit, and so they couldn't believe in him. They were so convinced of their own inaccurate expectations that when Jesus failed to meet those expectations, they rejected him. Don't do the same thing. Don't create expectations for how your life is going to go or how God is going to treat you or what circumstances are going to occur. Don't create these uh, expectations because we don't know how it's going to turn out. You know, as I think through the last few years, God has really been breaking down how much I've depended on my own expectations. With my career as a pastor, with you know what we thought would be a building for us one day, Rachel and I have been trying to adopt some additional kids. We don't think we have quite enough yet, but 
you know what? Two, two of those failed. That's hard. That's, that's not just filling out an application and getting a no. Those are, those are kids that you love, that you've pulled into your life, that you were convinced that God wants them to be in our family. But God never told me that. That was just that was my expectations. And if we put our expectations on this pedestal and we worship the expectations, God will let you down. But if we put our expectations on the altar, God will never let us down. And this is a lesson we need to learn from these Jews that were unconvinced by Jesus' powerful works. So, we see a third one, verses 37 to 38. Excuse me. Jesus said, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And so we have the Father's actual voice, but it was unheard by those who did not believe. Uh, in John chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, we see Jesus praying to the Father. He's saying, I want to glorify you. He said, glorify your name. Jesus says this. And the Father booms down from heaven with a voice. He says, I have glorified it and I will again. But those that were standing around said, no, no, that was thunder. So they heard it, but they didn't hear it. And, and this is, again, a testimony that falls short. Notice why they didn't hear it, though. He says, uh, again, in verse 37, he says, The Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. I think the order is this. They didn't believe. That's why they couldn't hear. Sometimes we think, if I could just remove all the circumstantial evidence that is preventing a person from believing, then they'll believe. That is not the case. You can remove every barrier possible. Either they're going to believe or they're not going to believe. The truth is, those that don't believe, they're the one, they erect the evidence before them that they think prevents them from believing. I was listening to a national conference on atheism. And they had, at the end of it, they had a panel up front. And one of the speakers said... They were talking about how critical it is, how important it is to be skeptical. And one of them said, if the God of the Bible descended through this ceiling, came down in this room, and spoke to us, even then, I would be skeptical. And of course, everyone on the panel agreed, and the auditorium roared in applause. What were they saying? They were saying, there is no amount of evidence that will cause me to believe. And because they didn't believe, no amount of evidence would persuade them. And so this is what we have going on here. They refused to believe. And so even when the Father's voice from heaven boomed down, it was of no good. Now, in verses 39 and following, we see that Jesus really defines their failure. And we're going to use their failure as our instruction for our solution. But before we do, can I just say how terrifying verses 39 and following are? I mean, look at at what he says. He says, you search the Scriptures... Because you think that in them you have eternal life. I mean, we have the Pharisees that are searchers of Scripture. Anyone else here a searcher of Scripture? I am. I've devoted my life to it. It says in verse 45b that they even set their hope in it. Anyone here put their hope in it? Again, I I think I fall into that category. They claimed even to believe in it. 
verse 44, you see Jesus having to convince them, you don't really believe it. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is kind of alarming too because he's saying, you think you believe in the Bible. The evidence that you don't believe in the Bible is you're seeking to receive glory from other people instead of seeking to perceive the glory that comes from God. Because of that, you don't really believe what you think you believe. And so we have their searching, they're setting their hope, they're believing, and yet in all of this, Jesus says, you're going to be condemned in the day of judgment. Will you be condemned? Well, let's learn from their mistakes and see. First of all, what can you do properly? How do we come to Jesus in a way that we will not find condemnation? And first, it is the right step. You need to search the Scriptures. Notice, he doesn't condemn them for searching the Scriptures. Look again in verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, not but, but and, it is they that bear witness about me. So he's not telling them not to search the Scriptures. He's just saying, when you search it, you've got to look for me. Eternal life doesn't come just from knowledge of the book. You've got to find me there. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, we see the story of Jesus with the men walking after the resurrection. What does he do? He takes them through all the law and all the prophets, and he shows them, look, these things had to take place. I was there, and I was there, and I was there. So they had studied the law and the prophets their whole life, but they missed seeing Jesus. They couldn't see him. And we see it again right here in verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. It's critical when we go to Scripture that we're not just finding you know, pithy statements. We're not just finding motivation for the day. We look for Jesus. We find Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, you remember the Bereans? You remember what set them apart? Remember it says they were more noble. Why were they noble? Because they searched the scriptures for themselves. They didn't reject Paul's word on the face of it, but also they didn't accept Paul's word on the face of it. Instead, they went to the scriptures to find out if it was true or not, and God says they were more noble because of that. It's important. You need to search the scriptures. We know from Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verses 15, it says we ought to rightly divide the word of truth. You know that verse? What does that mean to rightly divide the word of truth? Um, and, and we're found, uh, you know the word knolling, K-N-O-L-L-I-N-G. Ever heard of that word, knolling? If you're, if you're someone that does Legos, you know what knolling is. But knolling is, let's put that picture up where before you assemble something, you just lay everything out nice and even, all your tools, all the parts, you lay it all out, and that way you know exactly where everything is, you know before you even start, if you're missing anything, you just divide it all out. And when I think of rightly dividing the word of truth, that's what I think of, that picture comes to my mind. You're just laying it all out, you're seeing how everything connects and everything pieces in, and with it all laid out, you can spend time looking at this piece, and you know what, I don't have this figured out yet, but at least I'm starting to get there. This is a lifelong ambition to rightly divide the word of truth, and brother and sister, you need to be in Scripture. You have to go, you're not going to find Jesus outside of Scripture. You have to go to Scripture and search the Scriptures. When I was in college... I had more time than money, and, and if I needed my car fixed, I couldn't take it in. What I have to do? I had to do it myself. 
And I had no idea. I had no one to teach me. This was before YouTube and before the internet. So I'd go to the library. And they have an entire reference section. Some of you men have been there. And every make and every model of every vehicle you can imagine is a book this thick. And you pull that out and you open it up and it'll tell you how to change the alternator, how to change the starter, how to swap out the radiator, all that. And I did all of those things just in the park, in the, in the public park. I'd pull the car up on the curb and just work under it. But I had to have that document. And how well do you think I studied that document? Pretty well, because I was risking my car. I needed to get to work. I studied harder on that document than I did my homework most times. Why? Because I could afford to fail a quiz, but I can't afford not to have a vehicle to get to work so I can live. That's how we have to come to the Word of God. It's critical. It's critical. So we need to search the Scriptures. In all this, to find Jesus. But that's not enough. It's not enough just to search the Scriptures. Look what he says. He says... You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. So we have to come to Jesus. Intellectual pursuit is not enough. Philosophical curiosity is insufficient. Ideological alignment even, listen carefully, ideological alignment is inadequate. You have to come to the person of Jesus. It's got to be a person-to-person thing. It's not a system. It's not a certain specific set of doctrines. It's Jesus Christ. And you have to come to Him. Now, how can we illustrate this? By way of example. Please, come here. Please, come here. How many people in that area, their heart was leaping right now, thinking, I I don't want to go forward. How many people over here were like, oh, thank goodness he's pointing over that way. One person even goes, me? me, Are you pointing to me or this person back here? That's a great, just that, everything you just experienced right now when you heard me say that is is a great illustration of how we need to come to Jesus, how we need not to come to Jesus. So many times the Holy Spirit will be speaking to you through his word and you will think, is this, this isn't for me. This is, you know, I can think of someone who really needs to hear this now. In fact, I'm going to send them an encouraging tweet. I'm going to let them know exactly what I learned. So many times it's like, oh, I, you know what? I, I really hope I don't hear anything today that's going to make me have to change anything. I just don't want to change. But when we come to Jesus, by, you have to leave something to come to Jesus. We have to come to Jesus. And this is what we're going to be studying out throughout this year. We're going to see, how do, what does this really look like in my life to come to Jesus? Next Sunday, please come next Sunday. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12. It's going to be a great message. What, what does that really look like to come to Jesus? We need to come to Jesus. We need to search the scriptures. This is, coming to Jesus is putting action to the searching the scriptures. It's action. It's obedience. It's implementation. This is what Jesus, when Jesus gave the, the, the story about the, the wise man that built his ha- house on the rock and the fool that built his house on the sand, the difference between the rock and the sand was the person that built their house on the rock was one that heard it and did it, the words that Jesus was speaking. So we need to put into action what we're listening to. We need to put into action what we're reading. We need to really come to Jesus. And then we receive life. Search the scriptures, come to Jesus, 
receive life. He says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is the proper motivation. If you know what it is you have to gain and what it is you have to lose, then you'll start coming to Scripture. Too many of you are still convinced that it's supplemental. Too many people, too many believers in the church today believe that they can get by without Christ and they really can get by without the Word of God. Things are going pretty well. If trouble hits, then I'll find them in Scripture. But what you fail to understand is without it, you die. You're a withering plant without it. One of, one, of the, one of the words that we see in Scripture to describe coming to Jesus, coming to the Word of God, is spiritual food. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I need it to live. I cannot survive without it. And meals once a week are not enough. That's why we really, one of the main encouragements we're trying to push on the congregation this year is that you're not just a once a week Christian, but you're out there during the week meeting with other believers, whether it's in small group or whether it's a Bible study or with some kind of service ministry or just a one-on-one accountability, whatever it is, you're out there, you're interacting. Maybe it's hospitality, but you're interacting with the body throughout the week because you ha- we have to have it. It's, we have to have more of it. We have to pray together. Read together, study together, preach to each other, because this is where we find our source of life. And Jesus describes the life as eternal and abundant. Without it, your life will be shallow. It will be short. You you feeling constantly frustrated in life? Let, let me ask you this. And maybe our worship team can come forward because we'll close with this. Are you feeling constantly frustrated? Do you feel unaccomplished? Are you feeling, what did, what did Bilbo Baggins say, like butter spread out over too much toast? Can I, can I just tell you, it's probably because you are not living the way you were designed to live. We are designed to have interaction with the living God. We are designed to enjoy Him. We are designed to be in Him and to to shine His glory through us. And if you're not doing that, of course you're going to feel depressed. Of course you're going to feel unaccomplished. Of course you're going to feel lost and wandering. But if you search the Scriptures, you come to Jesus, you will find life, I guarantee it. Let's stand and close with this song, Jesus, Son of God. The words in the song are, On the altar of our praise, let there be no higher name than Jesus, Son of God. Don't sing the words if you don't mean it. And maybe this is the first time you're going to sing it and actually mean it. That's good. But let's, let's start with prayer so that we're, we don't say anything we don't mean. Father, we come to you now. And some people here are ready, Lord. They're ready to put their life on that altar. Maybe they they have done it time and time and time again, but they continually crawl off. That sin pulls them back. But Lord, now, now we're ready. We offer you everything. Lord, I pray that you would bless this next year of the life of Harvest Bible Chapel. That as we look to Jesus and see Jesus in every trial, in every blessing, in every page in Scripture, that as we look to see Jesus, we would come to him and that you would give us life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.